Mark chapter 9. We have been in the book of Mark for quite some time now, as if you've been coming, you have uh, been tracking along uh, with us in, uh, in that endeavor. And we come to the end of chapter 9, and we hear uh, these words. Uh, if you're able, would you stand in honor of the reading of God's word? Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it will be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off, for it's Uh, For it is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two to be thrown into hell. Where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourself and be at peace with one another. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And God, we thank you for your word. We pray your blessing on it as we look at it this morning. I ask for your help. I ask for your help for these who are here, that you give them ears to hear. We pray that you'll receive the glory as your people become more like your son. We pray this all in the name of your Son. Amen. You may be seated. Please keep your Bibles out. If you're using a pew Bible, it's page 845, 845, Mark chapter 9. I've heard it said before that the difference between a man and a boy is responsibility. It's not age. It's not if you can grow a beard It's not if you can chop down a tree. It's not if you can fix your own car. It's responsibility. It's about being willing to take on the weight of something. It's about being accountable for something or someone. It's about dependability. It's about trustworthiness. Responsibility makes a difference when it comes to Christians too. All Christians bear responsibility of being a disciple of Christ. It requires something of us. It requires that we we take on the weight, the, the accountability of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And we are aware that not everyone who claims the name of Christ is willing to bear the responsibility of Christian discipleship. Last week, we looked at Jesus' second prediction of his own death and resurrection. We saw the disciples' failure once again, and Jesus' subsequent instruction on the nature of discipleship, which was service above self, and unity over exclusivity. In our passage this morning, 
Jesus continues his great discipleship discourse here in chapter 9 as he further responds to John's statement in verse 38, which if you just let your eyes run up the text a minute, John said, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. So in, to, in response to that, Jesus talked about the nature of discipleship and now here in verses 42 through 50, we can find four responsibilities of discipleship, of Christian discipleship. The first comes in verse 42, when Jesus says, whoever calls one, causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Uh, this verse serves as a, a hinge between the previous passage and the following verses to the end of the chapter. It's bridging these two sections. Jesus, his point, it connects his point here with the previous uh, parable and conversation and uh, instruction concerning the, the child. And so he uses here the little ones who believe in me. In verse 41, we saw that the disciples were to do good, right? They were to give even a cup of water to those who believe in his name. Now here in verse 42, it's the opposite. Here, 41, it was do good. In verse 42, it's do no harm. Don't cause them to, to sin. Jesus was warning those who would destroy the faith of the little ones. And by little ones, he doesn't necessarily mean children, Literally, he means followers of Jesus. He certainly has in view, we could understand young or new believers, but certainly would be any believer who has been caused to sin. The one who does the causing will be judged. Now remember the context of the, the statement. Remember what we're dealing with. We're dealing with disciples who were exhibiting pride. Remember back in verse 34, they were having an argument about who was the greatest, right? Jesus just tells them he's going to die and rise again, and they start arguing about which one of the disciples is the greatest disciple. Now, there's pride being uh, shown here. They're not getting along very well with each other. And then verse 38 that we already read, John speaks up and says, well, hey, there's this guy. He's doing stuff and he won't listen to us. So he's criticizing other disciples. So not only are they not getting well along with each other very well, they're not getting along with other disciples very well. This isn't, a, this isn't a good picture that we have here of these disciples. They were not ministering well to others. Theologian Kent Hughes calls verse 42 a ministerial responsibility. The Christians are not to lead others astray or to cause them to sin, knowingly or unknowingly. To do so, Jesus says, there is a great cost. James chapter 3, verse 1 says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. The judgment against those who cause others to stumble into sin will be bad, to say it lightly. 
So bad though that Jesus says it would be better, what verse 42 says, if they were drowned with a millstone around their neck. That would be a better fate. This is a sober warning. This is a sober warning for us. It's a responsibility that every Christian carries to not lead others to sin, to not cause someone else to sin. Clearly, the way we treat other believers matters to God. We would do well to consider how we treat others, how we are treating others, how we may have treated others, how we may have caused someone else to sin. And if we have, we must repent. We are responsible. The responsibility of ministry is to not cause others to sin. That's not just a teacher's responsibility. It's not just a pastor's responsibility. It is the responsibility of any Christian disciple is to not cause someone to stumble. We are responsible for it, but not only responsible that others don't sin, we're also responsible for our own walk, our own personal holiness, which we find in verses 43 through 48. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. For it is better for you to enter life, it's talking about eternal life, the kingdom of God, crippled than with two hands go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off, for it's better to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now, we probably have heard these verses before. They're not uh, unfamiliar if you've read your Bible, but they are heavy, aren't they? They speak to the, the, the radical instruction of Jesus about dealing with our sin. Here, Jesus is calling his disciples to take action against the temptations to sin that they face in their lives. Now, to be clear, Jesus is not promoting self-mutilation. And we are not promoting self-mutilation this morning. So if you fall asleep at this point, and don't hear the rest of this, don't cut your hand off, don't cut your foot off, and don't gouge out your eye. And don't say, I told you to do so, right? That's not what's happening here. There are two reasons, there probably could be more, there's two reasons biblically that we know this. One, the Bible forbids self-mutilation. It forbids it. Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse one, Deuteronomy, Chapter 23, verse 1, 1 Kings 8, 28, Zechariah 13, 6, forbids it. So clearly Jesus is not doing something that the Old Testament forbids. That seems obvious. Secondly, Mark chapter 7, Jesus already dealt with that our sin does not come from outside of us. Right? What, what corrupts us does not come from outside us. It's already inside us. So cutting off your hand, cutting off your foot, 
gouging out your eye isn't going to change that we have sin on the inside. So what is Jesus doing then? He's using hyperbole. He's exaggerating here in order to make a point. And the point is that sin is serious. Hell is a reality. And the steps we must take to deal with our sin are drastic. But why does he say hand, foot, and eye? We have other parts of our body. Why does he use those three? Well, those three speak to what we do with our hands, where we go with our feet, and what we look at with our eyes. One commentator says this is a summarization of the totality of life. What we do, where we go, what we look at. Again, Kent Hughes recaps Jesus' intent here by saying this, it is better to clean up your fleeting life here through some healthy self-denial than go bearing your sins to an unending Gehenna, hell, an eternal smoking rubbish heap where the worms eternally gorge themselves on the refuse of life. This cleaning up is our personal responsibility. No one can do this for you. No one can root out the temptation in your life. No one can do that except you. You are called to take action, and it's a radical action to, to stop what we're doing. And this stopping, this cleaning up, this repenting of, this turning from sin is the sanctifying work of the Spirit of God in your life where we repent of our sin and we turn from it. But it is our responsibility. Yes, by grace and empowered by the Spirit, but it is our responsibility. You carry the responsibility for your sinful choices. And by grace and through the power of the Spirit, you can say no to sin and you can say yes to God. That's why you have the Spirit. So this, the devil made me do it, or the temptation was too great, doesn't work because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. You can, by grace, through the Spirit, say no to temptation, say no to sin, and say yes to God. And when we do fail, what do we do? We repent because God is faithful and just to forgive us for those who will confess. But a life audit is in order here, isn't it? For you and I to take stock and consider our own lives, to ask ourselves questions like, what, what do I do? What do I do with my hands? What, what, what kind of actions am I, am I doing? What, what kind of behaviors am I a part of? Where am I going? Where are my feet taking me? What are the places I go? How am I spending my time? Where am I spending my time? And, and where am I putting myself? Into what contexts? In your eyes, what are you looking at? And this, this day and age, the idea of, of consumption through our eyeballs, you are constantly, we are constantly bombarded, right? With images, with screens, with advertisements, television and cell phones. You can't go anywhere without a screen. You can't go anywhere, there's not ads calling for your attention, calling for you to, to buy something, make you dissatisfied with the life that you have, whatever it is. 
or it could be what you're watching with, uh, on the television, in the news, in movies, in social media, in video games. Like the list goes on about what we do with our eyes. Eyes are the window to the soul. What are we letting into our life? And then asking ourselves of our hands and of our feet and of our eyes, are any of these things causing you to sin? Are the things that you're doing with your hands causing you to sin? The places that you're going, are they leading you to, to places where there, there's opportunity for sin? Are the things that you're looking at, are the things that we are letting into our mind and our heart? You know you can't unsee things. Some of us have learned that lesson the hard way. Young people, you can't unsee things. Guard your eyes. If those things are keeping you from holiness, if they're causing you to sin, cut them off. Our entertainment is not as important as our holiness. Some of us might not know what to do without fill in the blank, without our favorite TV show, without our cell phone, without our video game. If it is not leading you to holiness, the question is, do we cut it off? Our entertainment is temporal. Our holiness is for eternity. One theologian says that Jesus was calling not for physical mutilation, but spiritual mortification. Mortify. Some of you have the, the old King James Bible. I grew up on that. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, it says, Mortify your members which are on the earth. We don't use that word mortify very much these days, but it means put to death. Put it to death. The Puritan John Owen once wrote, do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. And then he says this memorable line, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Owen went on to say what, what this mortification was, that it was the habitual weakening of sin by constant fighting and contending against sin with frequent success. What does it mean to kill sin? What does it mean to mortify our members? It means to be habitually weakening the sin, habitually cutting off those things that are not helping us follow Jesus. This continual, this habitual weakening, this constant fighting and contending tells us that this is not a one and done. This is a lifetime pursuit. We don't just at one point cut it off and it's done. The sin is over. There is no more temptation. That is not how the Christian life works. And anyone who has walked a day as a Christian knows that that's not how the Christian life works. It is a battle. The fighting and the contending is ongoing. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Jesus here is expressing the seriousness of sin. 
and the awful reality of an eternal hell. Jesus spoke about hell. He gets most of the attention for what he said about love and of grace and of mercy. And those things are true. And he said all those things. But Jesus spoke a lot about hell. Here, the word hell is the word Gehenna. That's taken from this phrase called the Valley of Hinnon. That's a location. It was a valley outside of Jerusalem. It's a valley where in the Old Testament, wicked King Ahaz worshiped. He worshiped in this valley and he worshiped the fire god Molech. Not only did he worship this god, but he, he sacrificed his sons as an offering to this god in this valley. Gehenna was a place later that was used to burn refuse, so it was outside of the city, and dispose of corpse. Gehenna became a symbol of final judgments and of what Jesus calls here an unquenchable fire. It was a trash heap that burned all the time. That's the picture that Jesus is giving to us of hell. This unquenchable place, this unquenchable fire, a place of torment, a, a place of judgment, judgment on sin. And yet, what we know of Gehenna, what we know of hell, is that it is a real place. It's a real place of eternal judgments for those who remain in their sins, those who persist in their unbelief, those who continue to reject Jesus. Now the truth is that speaking about hell isn't very popular. You're not gonna get a lot of um, accolades for speaking about hell. Quite frankly, that's probably not the best way to get people to come to your church, is to talk about hell. No one likes to be told that they're probably going to hell. No one likes that. It's not, not something that we want to hear. But J.C. Ryle wrote this, there is no mercy in keeping back from men the subject of hell. Were there no boundless mercy in Christ for all that believe in him, we might well shrink from the awful topic. Were there no precious blood of Jesus able to cleanse away all sin, we might well keep silence about the wrath to come. But there is mercy for all who ask in Christ's name. There is a fountain open for all sin. Let us then boldly and unhesitatingly maintain that there is a hell and beseech men to flee it before it, it, it is too late. Knowing the terrors of the Lord, the worm and the fire, let us persuade men. It is not possible to say too much about Jesus Christ, but it is quite possible to say too little about hell." End quote. Here's what we know. Hell was created for the devil and his angels, and it is a place of judgment for those who persist in their sin. For those who refuse to believe on Jesus, they will be judged in a place called hell. This is the fate for those who die apart from Christ. But the good news is that there is mercy. 
available through Jesus, that John 3.16 tells us that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes should not perish, should not be judged in eternal hell, should not perish but have everlasting life. Salvation from hell to life eternal is available through Jesus. One of my favorite passages is Ephesians chapter two. If you wanna go there just for a moment. Page 976. The first three verses, the Apostle Paul tells us that our condition is pretty bad. That we're dead in our trespasses and sins. That we follow the prince of the power of the air. Things aren't good. Uh, Things aren't good apart from Christ. We're in a bad place. And then in verse four, he says this, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, so that means you didn't do anything good to deserve this. Jesus did this before you did anything good, brother, sister. What happened before that? He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immense riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That is good news. That is good news for all of us. The judgment of sin is coming, but there is rescue available. If you don't know Jesus this morning, the invitation is for you to come to this one. This one too, even while you were dead in your trespasses and sins, came. John, Romans chapter five tells us, scarcely for a righteous man would one dare to die, but, but God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He died for us while we're still sinners. You're still a sinner. He died for you to make a way for you to know him and to escape the coming judgments. Will you see his love, his great mercy, his rescue? And will you repent and believe? That is the invitation this morning for you. If you do know him, if you have trusted him, then will you take up the responsibility to follow him? Follow him in obedience. Follow him in personal holiness. But that's not all Jesus says. Go to verse 30, 49. He continues, for everyone, we're back in Mark 9, for everyone will be salted with fire. Here we can see the responsibility of sacrifice. Verse 49 is, is unique to the book of Mark. Uh, we've looked through Mark this far and sometimes we're referring to what Luke says about this subject and what um, Matthew says about this passage, but here, verse 49 is only in the book of Mark, which means that we have no help from any other gospel writer as to understanding exactly what's happening here. Some of your Bibles have a little bit more of this text than what I just read. That's due to uh, the things, the way the manuscripts uh, that were used. 
It is known that this verse is difficult. It's difficult to understand. One commentary that I read said that there are over a dozen different interpretations of this verse. So, unlikely that we're going to clear up all those uh, problems this morning. Uh, but let me give you a couple thoughts uh, from people that I think are smarter than me. Uh, J.C. Ryle, again, he, though he says, let me, let me say this just to help us understand the difficulty of it. He says, we must wait for more light uh, concerning this passage. And he regarded the text as one of the deep things of God. So basically he's saying, not quite sure. <laughs> not quite sure we can understand this. So good people come down differently on this, but we want to try to understand the best we can. So one commentator says it this way. Verse 49, taken in its context, reaches back to the unquenchable fires of Gehenna in verse 48 and forward to the self-discipline verse in verse 50. The commentator went on, it says, everyone must be salted somehow, either with unquenchable hot fire of Gehenna or with severe fire of self-discipline. The wise, wise is he who chooses the latter alternative, end quote. Warren Wearsby says that someone after reading, the disciple after reading verses 43, hearing verses 43 through 48 might say, but isn't that too great a sacrifice for us, right? To cut off, to so radically deal with our sin. Isn't that too great? This is a great um, uh, ask. Uh, Wearsby continues, the response to that question would be this. Would you rather the fires of hell as a lost sinner or the purifying fires of God as a sacrifice for his glory. For everyone will be salted with fire. Everyone will be salted with fire. Uh, the salt here is a reference back to the Old Testament sacrifices. In Leviticus chapter two, we find out that salt was required of these sacrifices. Salt had to be part of the sacrifices. So we're getting this idea of, of, of sacrifice here. We're getting this idea of an, of an offering. In the New Testament, we learn that Christians are called to be living sacrifices in Romans chapter 12. Sacrifices, we understand in the scriptures, were always consumed by fire. So here, everyone's gonna be salted by fire. Everyone's gonna go through a fire. Everyone's going to be consumed by a fire, tested by a fire. Believers will be salted or purified or refined by the fires of trial and suffering. That's what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 14. We won't take time to go there. But the point is that there's going to be a fire. Either it's the fire of Gehenna for the unbelief, or it's the fiery trials and suffering that a believer goes through in order to purify him. For everyone will be salted by fire. The responsibility that, that we have is to embrace the sacrifice, embrace the suffering, embrace the reality that being a Christian means that we are a living sacrifice. Being a Christian means that we will have to suffer. It is a, in Diedrich Bonhoeffer's word, a badge of true discipleship. Christian discipleship involves being salted with fire. This is responsibility we must embrace. The Christian life, brother and sister, is suffering now, glory later. It's not glory now. We, we want peace now and peace later. We want glory now and glory later. Sorry, that's not how this works. It's suffering now, glory later. This was the life of Jesus. Why do you think your life or mine should be different? The fires are meant to purify us. They're not meant to harm us. 
They're meant to help us. This isn't God saying, ha, 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 life is suffering for you. No, it's God purifying his people, bringing us into conformity to the Son of God. Well, there's one final responsibility that, that we see in verse 50 as Jesus concludes. He carries this idea of salt over to verse 50 with a bit of a different meaning. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourself and be at peace with one another. So here Jesus is saying salt actually is also a preservative. And we know in the culture of that day, that's how salt, one of the ways salt was used, to preserve food from rotting. There was actually this Jewish maxim that says the world cannot survive without salt. And some of you probably say amen. But they meant it a little bit differently than, than our modern day does, right? Earlier, though, in, in the Gospels, in the book of Matthew, Jesus talks about salt. And he says to his disciples, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now you may say, how does salt lose its saltiness? That doesn't make any sense. Well, in our day, it doesn't. But then, due to the impurities, salt could lose its saltiness. It could become useless. It could lose what it was meant to be for. So Jesus is using this as a, a metaphor to say to the disciples, you are, are salt, and salt is good, but salt can lose its saltiness. And if it does, it's of no use. There's a danger here in losing the saltiness. And by that, he means this, this preserving influence, right? This idea that, that we are the salt in the world, that we're preserving, that we're influencing the communities and the people uh, around us. The disciples are called to, to be salt, to have salt in themselves, to be a per preserving influence in the midst of a world that is decaying. And brother and sister, friend, the world is decaying. And Christians are to be salt in the midst of that world. For the disciples, their present condition, their influence, um, due to their present condition, their influence was suspect at best. But what about us? What about us? Have we lost our saltiness? Have we lost our influence? Let me ask you this, if you were taken out, out of your family, out of your school, out of your work, out of your neighborhood, if this church ceased to be here and all of us ceased to be here, would anybody know? Would there be any difference in the community? Would anyone care? Would the influence of, of our life into the world that we live would it matter if it wasn't there tomorrow? The world will not care. Let me say it this way. We will never make a difference in the world if the world sees no difference in us. If we have lost the saltiness, to use the words, then how do you think that we're gonna make a difference in this world? We won't. God will have another way, but it won't be through us. If we want to be part of what God is doing, may God make us salty. How do, how do we stay salty? How do you keep your salts? How do you do that? Carry out your responsibilities. 
Hear the word of God. Stay close to Jesus. If we are to be salt, if we are to be in the world but not of the world, if we are to live in this community and in this culture and make a difference, we must get serious about these responsibilities of caring for one another, of personal holiness, of rooting out sin, of embracing sacrifice. And this last thing that he says in verse 50, he says to these disciples that are at war with each other, and it's a good word to you and me, he concludes with, and be at peace with one another. We wanna make a difference in the, in the world. One of the ways we can do that is for Christians to live in unity with one another, to love one another. We got enough divisions out there. We don't need them in here. We're not here because of our political positions. We are not a church of one aisle or another, one color or another. We are not. If you think you are, you're wrong. We are not. We are a church of Jesus Christ. That is what binds us together. That is what holds us together. That is what will hold us together. If you're not here for Jesus, you're here for the wrong reason. Be at peace with one another. How do we do that? By majoring on the majors, by keeping the gospel the main thing, by fulfilling our responsibilities to ministry, to personal holiness, to embracing sacrifice and suffering, to by grace being influenced in this world. So I conclude by just asking this, how will you be, make a difference this week? By grace, how will you make a difference this week? You can, you can. Your life can make a difference this week. Your salt can have a preserving influence. Those of you that go into a public school, you have an opportunity to, to make a difference in those hallways. You teachers who, who teach in, in public settings, you have an opportunity to be salt. You go, those who go into to, uh, secular jobs and wherever you're at or in communities or you live with people who don't know Jesus, you have an opportunity. You have an opportunity to show what it looks like to follow Jesus. That's not all the things that they think. If we would hear Jesus' words, we would follow his instructions. May God help us to make a difference. May he help us to follow and hold on to and fulfill our responsibilities as a, his disciple. Let's pray, Father. May our influence in this world be for the good of others and the glory of God. We can acknowledge here this morning that we have responsibilities. God, we need help to, to fulfill those responsibilities. We pray for your grace this week to love others well, to not lead other people astray, to pursue personal holiness, to embrace the suffering that it is to follow you. And Father, with your help, to positively impact the world, to influence the world around us, that Jesus Christ might be known. And we'll give thanks in his name. We pray, amen. Oh God, you